Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 through 23. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at, the de- only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is still alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, he sprinkled both the book itself And all of the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all of the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Lord, we ask for your leading and your guiding here this afternoon as we worship you. We pray that our spirits, our hearts, our souls, that which is within us, Lord, would be convicted of our sin and also excited in the joy that is found in forgiveness from you. As we read this text and study it and hear from you, God, we ask that you would Minister to our hearts where whatever it is specifically that we each need here right now to hear from you. Whether it's love or a hard word or a loving hard word. Whether it's just a word of joy and encouragement or that word of loving and tender rebuke or even a hard word of rebuke. Lord, when we come to a passage like this, especially when it talks about in such explicit detail the death that is required for our sin, I pray that our consciences would not be so hardened to having heard this message so many times that it doesn't affect us. But that we would be moved by it, challenged by it, and have to wrestle with the things that it tells us that we might love you better and know you more than we, when we leave here than we did when we came in. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Okay. Don't get mad about what I'm about to say. Okay? I am a very touchy-feely kind of guy. Some would say, my wife being one of them, I think, that I'm kind of like the chick in the relationship sometimes. <laughs> That's what don't get offended about, okay? (laughs) I cry at movies. You know, that first Star Trek movie that just came out when Spock's mom died? Oh, I bawled. (laughs) 
It's so crazy, right? It's ridiculous. I acknowledge the ridiculousness of it, but yet it still gets me every time I watch that movie. Oh, Mama Spock. <laughs> I cry at commercials. I can just read somebody's post. In fact, it, it happens all the... Yesterday, me and Joe were watching The Avengers, and I, this one part of kind of tearing up, and I'm like, oh, man, I can't let the biddle see. <laughs> I am, I am, I am, I am, I am touchy-feely. But you're not here to hear about me. The point of me even bringing that up here is that it is hard for me as I read through this text not to get emotional and stirred up. Even though I have read and heard these truths expounded many times, I've read them through in my own private devotions dozens of times, and, and, and I, I don't want to sound more spiritual than I should either. I think there's a part of it that just is my emotional makeup. But there's a part of it too that when we come to truths like this, that we have to take them very seriously and we should be moved by them. And I'll, if we're not moved by the things that we read here, then we should really take that as a warning Think through why they don't affect us in such a visceral kind of way and maybe pray about it and ask the Lord to soften our hearts or change our hearts or help us see these things. The reason is, is because this passage right here, what the writer of Hebrews is laying out for his audience is this is how seriously God takes sin. Some sins we understand are very serious, and we don't toy with them. We don't muck about with them, right? There are some sins where we make sure that we fence ourselves from them. There are some sins where we don't even call them sins, right? Little white lies. Oh, it's just a little indiscretion, right? Our whole language has terms and phrases that have come up over the years that have allowed or given permission for certain kinds of sins. Oh, it's just boys being boys, right? And you probably think of other kinds of um, these colloquial phrases that, that I'm bringing up right now. Augustine said it earlier, just occurred to me, that, that Paul said he didn't even know what covetousness was. Until the law pointed it out. Because who thinks wanting something else is a sin? Right? But that's in God's top ten. <laughs> the reason why we don't want to allow for these kind of things to be motivators for us in sin is because then we will give ourselves permission in certain cases to sin. We'll allow certain things, we won't allow other things, right? We want our, well, I'm assuming, I will grant that, I'm assuming that every single one of you wants to have your consciences so sensitive to the things of the Lord that when sin does come up in your own life, that you acknowledge it, you're convicted by it, and you're quick to repent of it. I'm assuming that of you, that you all want that. 
If you don't, again, here's a second warning that you've heard this evening that you ought to stop and pray about that specific thing and say, Lord, make me sensitive to the sins that I commit and the sins that I'm in danger of committing. The reason is, is because God takes sin so seriously, your individual sin, which is, we all acknowledge, as a result of Adam's fall and giving you that sin nature. But your own specific sins that come about because of that sin nature are such an offense to God's holiness, his righteous standard, that he requires your death for one sin. One. I don't even know how many times I've sinned today. (laughs) Much less throughout my lifetime up to this point. And there's future sins I haven't committed yet that's just I'm fixing to in my future sometime. And God is so holy and so righteous that he cannot dwell in the presence of sin. And he requires perfection for those and of those who are a part of the kingdom of God. He's created everything so he has the right in order to dictate the terms of his relationship with you, right? He's God. He has the right to say, I created you, therefore here's what I require of you. And if you violate that, then you don't have any reason to say, well, wait a second, God, or I don't think so, God, or you didn't, or anything. We stand like Job at the end of that book with our hand over our mouth and we say, oh no, I said things that I didn't even have any awareness of. And sometimes we need a... a I don't want to, the word revelation has so many weird connotations, but that's exactly what it was at the end of Job, wasn't it? God revealed himself in a unique way to Job when he showed up at the end of that whole thing. Remember, Job was undone. All of his family had died apart from his wife, it seems like. All of his property had been taken away. His possessions had been destroyed. His health had been removed from him. And his wife says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? And he says to her, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're not going down that road. That's, I'm politing it up. And then he goes through that whole long excruciating time where he's in pain, he's suffering, he's questioning, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing me to go through this? And his friends start piping up and they go, well, you know, Job, you've got to have some sin. What secret thing is going on in your heart that you haven't confessed to God? Because for sure this isn't all happening to you because you're innocent. But you see, we have the perspective, because Job gives us the perspective, of seeing what's going on in heaven and what's going on in earth. And what's going on on earth is exactly because Job was so innocent. 
It was the exact opposite. And so at the end of the book of Job, what we find when God shows up, he comes and rebukes Job because Job was saying, why is this happening to me and questioning God's goodness? His friends were questioning God's righteousness or what was happening. They were questioning what, what was going on with Job. And he rebukes them as much as he rebukes Job. But when he shows up to Job, he says, Job, he doesn't say, here's what was going on, buddy. Here's why I did it. Satan came and we had this test and it was a thing and you passed. Woohoo! God shows up and says, Who are you, Job? Where were you when I created the universe? Where were you when I made the oceans? Where were you when I created the wind and the mountains? What say did you have on what kind of animals I created? Leviathan or elephants or all of these wonderful creatures. Where were you when I did all this? In fact, if you know so much, tell me how I did all of these things, Job. God comes to Job in this revelation and reveals to him, Job, I don't owe you anything, but what I do is I give you my grace and I give you my love. And at the end of that, he comes to Job and does bless him indeed. But it isn't because of anything Job did. In fact, at the end of that, like I said, Job fell down on his face and said, I have nothing to say. I need to just shut my mouth right now. When we come to this, what we're looking at right here, we want to remember what the Hebrews were struggling with. They were kind of in a Job-like position. Don't mishear me, I'm not saying they were Job's. They were in a similar situation where they were enduring persecution. They were going through a very serious hardship and it didn't have anything to do with the things they were doing. They weren't bringing this upon themselves. They were simply experiencing the natural course of events for a person who follows Jesus Christ. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now we should and could jot down in our side of our Bibles and ask ourselves, when was the last time we endured persecution? It'll help give us perspective here because if we haven't endured persecution, it's very easy for us to distance ourselves from these Hebrew believers and look down on them and be like, oh, I don't know what their problem was. When in reality, it's the very problem that we have and we probably could do a good healthy dose of this book as well, which is why we're here in the first place, right? So here's what happens. Our sin deserves God's judgment. He's writing to the Hebrews and he's laying it on thick here. I'll acknowledge it, but rightly so. It needs to be laid on thick because what he's saying to them is he's getting them in the chokehold right now. Okay? In fact, think about this. We've just gone through a lot, nine, no, you know, not quite nine full chapters, but close to nine full chapters. How much practical wisdom has there been in the book so far? Very little. Very, very little. In fact, the practical stuff really has to do with prayer, doesn't it? Come boldly before the throne of grace to ask for mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Then there at the end of chapter 4, right? For the most part, it hasn't been, you know, 
practical, wholesome, kind of down-home advice. He's going to get to that in chapter 12, well, especially chapter 13, which is the last chapter of the book. What he's doing is he's giving doctrine, 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 because what you believe comes out in the way you live. I've said it for hundreds of years, doctrine dictates lifestyle, right? And that's what's happening here. He's giving them doctrine in order to dictate their lifestyle. Your doctrine is askew. That's why you're doing the things you're doing and going down the path that you are. And what they need is they need this word of, it's a hard word, it's a word of blood. If you look in this text, blood is mentioned six times. Blood, 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 blood. Now, I'm... I told you I was touchy-feely, but I'm not squeamish. Okay, I can be around blood and not be too affected by it. I can, you know, see the things that I see doing what I do as a job. And just, it's okay. I just do what I need to do and get it done, and it's fine, and I don't get weird about it. But none of that blood that I see or none of the blood that most of the time we experience in our lives has anything directly to do with our sin. Here it does. And the reason why it's so important here is because the point that the writer of Hebrews is making to these struggling Jewish Christians is he's saying to them, listen, you Jobies, If you start questioning God, which is what you're doing, which is what Job did, and you leave that to go back to something else, you don't have the very thing that you need for your continued existence. You don't have the very thing you need for life. You're going to abandon life for death. You're going to abandon the only thing, the only means that which God provided for you to be in a right relationship with him to go off into a wrong relationship with him. And you think by justifying it in your own minds that it's going to be okay, and beloved, it's not. A death occurred, verse 15 that redeemed us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Look at Leviticus chapter 17 with me real quick. Pretty sure my Bible still has it. There it is. You guys all there? Look at verse 10. Boy, we could read this whole thing here. (laughs) Anyways, if anyone of the house of Israel or one of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. 
There's an interesting passage also in Acts chapter 15 where the end of that church council, remember that church council, the very first time the whole church kind of gets together to come to some kind of agreement. And the issue is, should the Gentiles be circumcised or are they cool just remaining Gentiles? And the answer was, yeah, they're cool just remaining Gentiles as long as they don't commit sexual fornication and they don't eat things that have been strangled, sacrificed to idols, or drink of the blood. This is why. They're going back to Leviticus chapter 17, and they're saying the atonement is in the blood because in the blood that's where life is. So, when we come to the book of Hebrews, understand, these are all Jewish Christians, so they know Leviticus inside and out. It's like all of us, wait, hey, 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 hey. Most of us here know Romans pretty well, right? I mean, I could tell you, hey, Romans chapter 5, and you're going to go, oh yeah, Adam and Jesus. You know, Romans chapter 4, oh yeah, Abraham's the heir of the whole world, right? Romans chapter 8, ah, glorious chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? We can do that. We know Romans. Beloved, that's how these guys knew Leviticus. Okay? So when he brings this up, for us in our Gentile 20th century ears, it's kind of hard to hear blood, 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 blood. But for them, it made a lot of sense. This, for them, is a very persuasive argument because they understood that my sin requires death and I have to go regularly and kill an animal as I confess my sins on that animal in order for me to be right before God. We don't, none of us have ever done that, even one time. So we need the jarring imagery. We need to hear the hard word that this is so that we are affected by this passage rather than just blazing through it to get to the good stuff, which is next week, I admit. It's next week. This is the hard stuff. But beloved, can I, can I do a parenthesis real quick? Yeah? Joel, can I? Thank you. Okay. Parentheses real quick. This is why we're here every Sunday. Because you need this, this, this foundation so that when you get to the end of chapter 9 and you get into chapter 10, it clicks. It's like, oh yeah, this is the foundation. This is not the popular stuff, right? You get your Bible memorization cards and you flip through them. You're, you're not coming to Hebrew, this part of Hebrews chapter 9. <laughs> you're just not. But this is what we need. And maybe we do need to memorize this passage so that we have it as our very sobering and real foundation for our life in Christ. For a will, pardon me, I'm getting off track a little bit. Where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Because a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is still alive. Jesus is the guarantor of this will, because he has already fulfilled all the stipulations of that will. We've already looked at that. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time in it, and we're going to look more at it next week, okay? 
So just know that this will concept is all bound up in the work of Jesus Christ and everything that he did. He is the guarantor of the will so that all of the stipulations that were necessary for that will have been met in him so that we can be sure of our salvation in him. So therefore, verse 18, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Now, if you've ever been to a higher church, well, we're in one, but I mean, If you've ever been to a service there, you'll notice that sometimes there'll be a lot of spraying of water or waving of incense going up and down throughout the whole building. It's similar imagery to this. The point of this is saying that when the commandment was given by God, the first covenant, the old covenant, that in order for that covenant to be established, it required blood. And so Moses sacrificed these animals and sprayed the blood all over all of the people that were there in the congregation and over all of the implements that were going to be used under that first covenant so that everything was a bloody mess. Everything. You, the stuff, the book of the law, the tablets of stone, everything was covered in blood. Sounds kind of horrific. (laughs) Is that God? I haven't heard these verses in K-Love recently. (laughs) Yeah, this is the Lord. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. God commanded this to be done because it demonstrated for all that you all need to be covered with blood because your sin is such an offense to God and his holiness that only death will cover it. It should be your death, but God is substituting your death for the death of another, in this case an animal. In the same way, he sprinkled all the tent and the vessels and worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. Now, there's a couple of things that weren't, right? The clothes of Aaron were purified with water, okay? The priests themselves were purified with oil sprinkled over their head, okay? But almost everything else, namely, when you come and you worship before God or before his representative, the priest, you had to come with blood, And you had to come with blood, bringing blood on objects that had already been sanctified or consecrated with blood. Blood, blood, blood everywhere. Because look what it says. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The wages of sin is death. No exceptions. No exceptions. The wages of sin... Is death. We've just had the Holy See. I'm making fun of him. Make no apologies for that. Say to everybody that it is no longer permissible under Catholic theology for the death penalty to be enacted, that it's an offense to the human dignity and human rights. Who does this guy think he is? 
I want to say, how dare he? (laughs) And I understand an idea behind what he's saying. But the implication really is, the unsaid thing is that your dignity is so high and so valuable as a human being that you don't deserve death. Now he's, he's extending it further, saying for the crimes that you've committed, God doesn't agree with that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, no exceptions. There is no exception for this. Anywhere you go in scripture, the wages of sin is death. So, all y'all, me too, our little kids, our little tykes, Look, it's not hard to convince us that our kids are little sinners, right? (laughs) But when we look in the mirror, we polish ourselves up a little more. But the truth is the wages of sin is death. There's no exception. Look at this. Romans. Had to go there, right? I just talked about it. Romans chapter 3. Verse 19. Now, we know... And you know that whole big long thing, right? There's none righteous before God. No one understands God. No one seeks after God. No, not one, right? I don't need to read that whole part. Verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Every single person. But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, through the law and the prophets to bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Listen, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Shedding of blood is required for your sin to be forgiven. So what happens? God says, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, listen, by his blood to be received by faith. By his blood. You see, The gospel is not bloodless. The new covenant is not a bloodless covenant. The new covenant is not just the 2.0 of God's law. It required blood as well. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Even as God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the praise of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. You see, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Your sin, beloved, required God himself to come down off of his throne, take on human flesh, 
to suffer at the hands of his own creation and die and bear the wrath of his own self, his own law, his own father in your place. You came up before and sacrificed an animal and it was a bloody mess. That only got you to the place where you could trust in Christ so that he, God himself, would come down, take on human flesh, and die for your sins. God's blood was required to save you. That's how crazy our sin is. Our sin is so big and so magnificently offensive before a holy God is that God himself had to come down and suffer under his own law in order to get you saved to get you into his heaven to get you into his kingdom that's how holy God is that's how righteous he is but beloved he did it in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace so beloved we look at this passage right here and we see the wages of sin is death without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and hopefully you feel the weight of that but the response should be thank you lord Thank you, Lord, that you would see fit to save me from my sins. It isn't terror. It isn't horror in the fact that I am still under this wrath of God. It's a, how do I want to say this? It is a state of mind of understanding that brings us to the place of joy and enrapture in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. God took on human flesh and died shedding his blood because no covenant is purified without the shedding of blood. And Christ came down with his pure blood shed and atoned for all of the sins of all of his people whom he would call. We looked at that last week. He is the mediator of this. And so now I come to the Lord in just gratitude I make no claim upon him, but he has seen fit to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of all of my unrighteousness. That is amazing grace. When the Hebrews are struggling with going back to Judaism and going back to the ways of the world or their own mysticism, what he's saying to them here is, listen, there is no hope apart from the shedding of blood. And the greatest blood that has ever been shed is the person Jesus Christ. And if you abandon that blood, you have no hope. But if he is your hope, then he is the guarantor of your covenant. He is the hope of all hopes. He is the joy of all joys. Thus it was necessary for the copies of those heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Christ is the best sacrifice there is. When he gave up himself for us, he once for all, for all time, satisfied the wrath of God. So that we no longer have to worry or fear or have anxiety. When I come to the Lord, even under persecution, I can still wonder, ah, did I do something in this? But I never have to wonder if God's wrath is upon me. And I am getting something that I deserve. Because all of that is already under 
the cross of Christ. Christ is our great sacrifice. Christ is our great hope. He is our great hero and friend. He has taken all of this blood from that old covenant and taken it upon himself. And when he shed his blood, he did it for the forgiveness of sins for all time. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We trust you because of your grace, your mercy, and your kindness. And you have seen fit to come down and suffer and die at the hands of your own creation for our sins. And God, that is miraculous. That is amazing. Lord, I pray that we, as we hear this, would in some small way be that much more grateful and thankful for your salvation for us. You're so good. You're so right. You're so just to have done what you've done for us, for us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.